Hey, we're so happy you found us online. The message you're about to hear was recorded live at Grace Family Church. We're a community following the call to love God, love people, and make a difference. We meet at four locations around Durban and at graceonline.tv. Go ahead and share this message, or you can download it and listen to it in your car or at home later today. Wherever you are in the world, wherever you're listening from, thank you for connecting with us. And may you be encouraged by the message coming up next. Here's the deal, Dave. Uh, it's Greg. Yeah, I know. I know it's Greg, Dave. But here's the thing. Ever since I put you in charge of social media, it just really hasn't been working out. It's not my sweet spot. All right. I'm an accountant. First of all, you don't have to sign your name after everything. What are you, my dad? Well, again, I... And then I have six tweets after that that just say Google.com. Now, I can't even figure out, like, what was going through your brain when... Were you trying to Google from within Twitter? Please don't answer that. Long story short, my little brother is about to graduate from high school. He's got like 10,000 followers. I don't know how he does it, no one does, but we're gonna put him in charge of this, okay? So go ahead and send me an electronic mail with the usernames and passwords. Think you can handle that, Dave? Or you need to write it down on your little pen and paper here. I can handle that. Okay, great. And then after that, we're gonna talk about your future here at this company. Thank you. You want an email? I'll give you an email. Dear Hipster Doofus, here are your painfully obvious passwords. You bearded, no good, sneaker wearing, oh that's good, I haven't heard language like that since the Navy. Just because Daddy owns the company... Ooh, that's dark. But I like it. Hey, Greg. Yeah, Mike? You know you've been tweeting? I've been twittering?! series called Me and My Big Mouth. And I want to emphasize the me and my because what the series is not about is them and their big mouths, right? The boss and his big mouth, and the whatever. And it's about me and my big mouth. It's about taking responsibility for our own words because our words have an impact. Our words are powerful. They can bring life or they can bring death. And I don't know about you, but I hope you've enjoyed this series. I know I certainly have. I think this series has been deeply challenging for me, for my relationships. And, and this is difficult for all of us. If you missed any of the sessions, I really encourage you to go online, go into our YouTube channel or our website or our app and get the talks because they kind of build on each other week on, week in, uh, week, in week out. And, and they're all online. They stay up there forever. Um, and so I want to just do a quick little recap of where we've come so far with this series, Me and My Big Mouth. And so in week one... James, James, the brother of Jesus, who, who wrote this letter called James, he kind of gives us this bottom line in this letter. And we, we've talked about this. We've repeated this. I'm not really sure how you can improve on James's bottom line. And the bottom line, he's saying, when it comes to our words, we need to be quick to listen, slow to speak. Quick to listen, 
slow to speak. We even had little hand movements that went along with it. Quick to listen, slow to speak. And let me tell you, this is a game changer. It's a game changer for our relationships. It's a game changer in our family. Everyone benefits when everybody does this, when we're quick to listen and slow to speak. Then in the second week, we looked at James, and James kind of went a little bit deeper, and he kind of was kind of harsh. He said that we never really get control of our mouths. He says that the tongue is untamable. That there's something about our tongues that can never really be uh, domesticated. It's never really safe to ignore our mouth because we never really know what's going to come out of our mouths. It's always a threat to the things and to the people and to the relationships that we value most. And then last week, if you were here, uh, Jess spoke in the first two services. Paul took over in the 11 a.m. service. I don't know how many of you are here for that, uh, but I think Paul did an incredible job preaching a sermon that he never prepared. I don't know if you know that, but Jess, my wife, in the 915 service, uh, in front of 900 lovely people and all the people watching online, um, actually vomited on stage um, in the middle of her message. You may have heard about that. Um, just to say thank you so much for all your messages and your WhatsApps and emails and Facebook stuff. Um, she's doing fine. Uh, she just had a 24-hour bug. She's 100%, and she's actually preaching at our Cornubia campus this morning. But there we go. Um, and so I want to honor Paul for stepping up. He literally stepped up in the middle of that service and preached the rest of her message and then quickly prepared for this service. So I think he did a fantastic job. Um, just so that you know as well, thank you for the, yeah, thank you. Uh, and just so you know, um, and, and thanks for asking, she's not pregnant, um, but we appreciate the concern. Um, but but here, here's the crazy thing about that, that, that whole scenario, whether you're here or not. That, that, so, so she's actually preaching, and, and while she's preaching, the, the topic that she kind of, the, the language she was using was she was speaking about Paul's words where he says, let no unwholesome words come from your mouth. I mean, it's kind of ironic. Let no, and the word that Paul uses here, it literally means let no smelly, no stinky, it's kind of no fish mouth. We've got a picture. No fish mouth. That's really what Paul's saying in the context. If you read it in the original, and you can take that off because it's a horrific image, but it's, it, he's, it's, the point of it is he wants us to feel the like, grossness of it. And so as she's saying that, she, she vomits. And, and, and I want to tell you this story because it's important. There was a guy who came to see me this week. He's been a part of Grace for a while. And he came to me and he was, he was so emotional about it. He just had to meet with me to say how powerful that moment was, was for him. And I'm like, that moment? He's like, yeah, that moment. Because even as Jess did that, he was sitting there and he kind of was wrestling with God saying, why wouldn't God just protect her from that and let her get through the sermon without puking? And, you know? and, and it was almost like God said to him, no, I need you to see this. I need you to see this because you know the way you speak to your wife? You know the way you speak to your children? It's gross. It's gross. And no one wants to be around it. And it was like this moment where God just met him. And, and it was like the realization of, of how he had been speaking to his family. And he literally said to me, this, Tom, this is changing my marriage. This is changing my life. And I'm just aware, you know, God can use all things. <laughs> together for the good of those who love him, even a moment like that. Our words are incredibly powerful. Now, Paul goes on and he uses kind of another word picture to help describe what our words are like. And he says that we should approach every conversation as if our conversations are construction sites. 
Because we can use our words to tear down or we can use our words to build up. He says words are our building material. And so how are we going to use our words? When people leave our company, when they leave our presence, do, 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 we feel like, do they feel like they've been built up or do they feel like they've been torn down? Words are incredibly powerful. And then he kind of, Paul goes a little bit deeper. He says, you know, you want to know why? I want to get to the root of this. You want to know why you use your words to tear and to sting and to, to, to hurt people? I'll tell you why. It's not what's happening around you. It's because of what's happening inside of you. There's something going on inside of you that when you speak, it comes out. It's something that maybe happened to you a long time ago. Words that were spoken to you. Words that were spoken over you. Words that were spoken about you. And now you carry inside of you a, a bitterness. And Paul says, let me tell you, it's difficult to be a builder when you're bitter. It's difficult to use your words to build people up if you have bitterness inside of you. And Paul used the analogy of the glass of water. You remember that? And he filled the glass with water and then he had someone shake the glass and the water spilled. And he said, well, why, why did the water spill? And everyone says, oh, because you shook the glass. No, it's not because you shook the glass. It's because there was water in the glass that it spilled. If there was no water, nothing would have spilled. Life is going to shake us. That's inevitable. And what's inside of us will come out when we get shaken. So what's inside of us? It's difficult to be a builder when you're bitter. Now, the, the antidote to bitterness is, of course, forgiveness. And forgiveness is, is deciding that someone in the past no longer owes you. I love this definition. Andy Stanley says this, and this is, as I've said, this series is kind of stolen from, from North Point in, in the series they did. But he says this, forgiveness is deciding. I'm going to give someone in the past what they don't deserve so I can give the people around me now what they do deserve. That's what forgiveness is. And if we are able to gather up all of that bitterness, all of that resentment, all of that anger, and kind of take it to the streets and leave it there, then, then, then we have the potential to be remarkable, to be heroes in how we respond in an otherworldly way to the people and to the circumstances around us. And this is why this is such a big deal. You know this already, because hurt people hurt people. Yes? Bullied people tend to become bullies themselves. Abandoned sons become demanding husbands. Neglected sons become absent fathers. Abandoned daughters become suspicious wives. And on and on and on the cycle goes. There is a brand, and you know this because maybe this is your story or the story of someone close to you. But there is a brand of hurt from the past that brands us now with a desire to hurt the people around us. And sometimes we don't even know where it's coming from. Now the good news is that if you do the work, if we do the work of gathering up our bitterness and getting rid of our bitterness, or, or, or let me say this in a better way, if we allow Christ to do that work in us, because this is not about try harder. That's not the Christian message. That's not, the, that's not what grace is. I mean, if you went home in the last couple of weeks and you tried harder to be quick to listen, slow to speak, how many of you know you're going to fail on your own? You're going to run out. You're going to run to the end of yourself. But if we allow Christ to, to give us the strength and the capacity to do that, then we become, we have the opportunity to become remarkable, to become like Christ. 
And here's why. Because every once in a while, every, not for everyone, but every once in a while, and for more people than you might think, and maybe this is part of your story, even though you can't imagine it being part of your story when you think of your, your current reality, but every once in a while, what goes around comes around. Yes? Turn to someone and say, what goes around comes around. Now, don't say it in like a threatening, you know, <laughs> scary oaks. Okay. What goes around comes around, and sometimes the powerless find themselves in a position of power. That the people who hurt you may someday need you. And how you leverage your words when the people who hurt you need you, how you leverage your words in those moments says more about you than just about anything else. Abraham Lincoln said this, Nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. How you leverage your words in the moments where you have the power says more about you than just about anything else. And I want you and I want myself and I want all of us to be ready when those moments come. And so I'm going to tell you a story today. And we're going to journey through a story. Some would say the, the second greatest story ever told. If the greatest story ever told was about a God who loved us so much, this rebellious race, enough to send his son to pay for our sins, then perhaps the second greatest story ever told is a story that mirrors that same idea, but that happened long, long before Jesus arrived on earth. If you read, if you start reading your Bible in the book of Genesis, it's going to take you a while to get to the person of Jesus. But if you start in Genesis, it won't take you long before you come across a guy by the name of Abram. Abram who became Abraham. Abraham to whom which God made a promise. A promise that said, Abraham, I will bless you and you will become a father to the nations. He says, look at the stars. Your, 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 your descendants will outnumber the stars. And, and, and Abraham and Sarah had to wait quite a while. Uh, but finally they had a son by the name of Isaac. Isaac who eventually went and had two sons by the name of Esau and Jacob. Now, if you look at the little family tree, if you look at just the first three lines of the family tree, it doesn't feel like much of a nation, does it? Hardly much of a family, really. But then Jacob goes to have, on to have 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And now we start to see the birth of a nation starting to take place. But here's the crazy thing. Here's the interesting thing about this, this story is that the entire enterprise, the entire promise of God to Abraham, God's goal for once, what he wants to do for the, the redemption of the whole world, his entire plan would end up hanging by the thread of one person's words. One person's words. In fact, the entire enterprise could have easily fallen apart based on a single sentence from a single person. And that person was Joseph. Joseph who was one of Jacob's 12 sons. Yeah, I just highlighted, that's Jacob. I mean, that's Joseph, you can see. He's the cool, anyway. So, so, so Joseph, who, he, he, Joseph basically, everything kind of hung on, on, on his words. Now, Joseph was Jacob's favorite son because he was the son of Jacob's favorite wife. Jacob's favorite wife was Rachel. Jacob had two wives, and then he also had some other woman that he had, I don't know how else to put it, he like a side hustle, okay? So Jacob had, had, had that and, and has his 12 sons, but, 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 Jake, but Joseph was Rachel. The, let me just give you some tips here. You're so laughing. 
um, the men in the room, never, here's a, here's a hint, never have a favorite wife. Okay, never have a favorite wife because it will lead to all sorts of problems. And this leads to all sorts of problems because the other 10 sons, Benjamin's a little too young, but the other 10 brothers, they hated Joseph. They hated Joseph because he was their father's favorite. And so one day they have enough. They're like, I've had enough of Joseph. And um, Joseph had this dream that he would become king and blah, blah, blah. And, and they fed up with that. And they're like, you know what? Let's just, let's just kill him. Let's strip him of his coat, that technicolored coat that his dad, our dad gave him. And let's throw him in a pit. And then it says, it says this. While they were deciding what to do with him, they're like, hey, let's, we, let's kill him. But before we kill him, let's have some lunch. I mean, seriously, that's what the text says. It says, as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming for Gilead, from Gilead. Now, Joseph is in this pit. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him. He's terrified. He's like, okay, guys, come on. Like, the joke's over. You know, he's, he, he knows how much his brothers hate him and resent him. He doesn't know what they're going to do to him. It says this, Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain? What good is it to us if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? And the brothers are like, yeah, that's a good point. He says, come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. In other words, if we're going to kill him, we might as well uh, make some money out of it. Let's sell him. And he does have a little bit of compassion. He says, after all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. Oh, gee, thanks, Judah. He's so kind. His brothers agree, and they pull him out of the pit. He's terrified. He doesn't know what's going to happen. And he sees these strangers from Gilead, these slave traders. His brothers tie him up. And they sell him to the slave traders. Now, maybe you've heard this story before. If you've been around church a while, maybe you have. But just pause a moment and recognize and realize how crazy this must have been. How terrifying this must have been for Joseph. Joseph was a 17-year-old boy. He was a teenager and he was being sold to slavers. He, he doesn't know who he'll end up with, what he'll be sold for. And, he's, and he sees his home going. He thinks he'll never see his home again. And his brothers wave him goodbye, assuming that they'll never see Joseph again. Now, the text continues. Joseph, now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. And then perhaps the strangest part of the story, in fact, this next line, it's kind of, or this idea, it becomes the theme of the story. It's repeated throughout the story. In the midst of all this chaos, the author tells us, and the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. Now, if you're anything like me, when I read that line, to be honest, I'm going, prospered? What are you talking about, prospered? No, no, no. If, if, if the Lord was with him and he was prospering, then he would be home with his dad and his 10 brothers would be in jail. Right? I mean, that's justice. The, he'd done nothing wrong. And now he was being sold. If God is with someone, don't good things happen? And throughout the story, this is kind of the theme over and over again, that God was with him. And, and the amazing thing to me, and perhaps the message for you and the takeaway for me, is that not only was God in some mysterious way with Joseph through this ordeal, but Joseph chose to live as a man that God was with. That's how he chose to frame his circumstances. And it changed everything. And I, I sense that that's a message for someone here this morning, that you feel like God has left you. You feel like he's abandoned you. And you're starting to live as if God is not with you. 
But let me just tell you, I'm here to remind you, God never left. He never left you. The fact that Joseph decided to live his life as if God was with him, rather than God having abandoned him, is truly remarkable. Well, eventually Potiphar, the, the guy who buys Joseph, notices that Joseph is a very talented person. He's a leader. He's got a gift of administration. So he puts Joseph in charge of his entire household. The problem was Potiphar was not the only one who noticed Joseph. Potiphar's wife also noticed him. And she demanded that Joseph sleep with him. Now again, this is, I mean... You can't make this stuff up, guys. This is like Game of Thrones in real, you know what I mean? Like, this is going on. And, and let me remind you that, that this wasn't a request by Potiphar's wife. This was a command. You don't make requests of a slave. A slave doesn't say no. A slave just obeys. But for the first time in her life, perhaps, Potiphar's wife hears a no. And it infuriates her. But I love the reason that Joseph gives. He says this. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And again, I'm like, God? You mean the God who's done nothing for you lately, Joseph? The God who, who watched as you were sold by your brothers? The God who stood by, did not intercede, who did not come to your rescue? This is the God, Joseph, that you continue to remain faithful to. Help me understand. And Joseph holds the line. And the, the scriptures say that Potiphar's wife was persistent. Day after day, she tried to get Joseph to sleep with him. And day after day, he replied the same, no, no, no. And finally, she's had enough. Finally, she's tired of the guilt. She's tired of this rebellious Hebrew slave. And she accuses Joseph of trying to rape her. Now, Potiphar has nothing. He, he, he's kind of furious. He throws Joseph into a prison. Uh, it says this, he, he, uh, the master took him and put him in a prison, the place where the kings, the pharaoh's prisoners were confined. And then again, this author brings us back to this theme, this line. But while Joseph was in the prison, the Lord was with him. In fact, it says God showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. I, again, I have to ask, whoop-de-doo. Who wants favor with the prison warden? I mean, if you have favor with the prison warden, things are not going well for you. But it says, while he was in the prison, the Lord was with him. Now you've got to say, I mean, if the Lord is with you, you don't go to prison. Surely that's hard work. Surely good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And, and if you're faithful, God will kind of, it's all supposed to work out, right? But this story and many, many others in Scripture reminds us of something that all of us need to be reminded about every once in a while. And that is this, that bad things have been happening to good people for a long time. That's just how it is. But here's the real truth, the truth underneath that truth. And that is this, that God has been with good people in bad times for a long time as well. Amen? God has been with good people in bad times for a long time as well. Eventually, Joseph kind of becomes somewhat of an administrative assistant in the prison. Again, we, we, we read this story. The problem is we read the story real quick, but this story took place over years. And now Joseph has been in prison for years. And he becomes kind of the administrative uh, assistant to the warden. And so it's kind of like in the Shawshank Redemption. You remember Andy Dufresne becomes the, the assistant to the warden. But he doesn't want to be there. 
He's miserable. And based on the description of the prison, most historians believe that this prison was actually completely underground. And so who knows if he ever saw the light of day or felt the wind on his face or the sun on his face or how rare it was for him to ever be able to step outside into the sun. So as the story goes, years go past, but eventually a pharaoh has his butler and his baker thrown into jail. Some of you know this. And uh, they get to know Joseph and a few more years go by. And eventually the butler and the baker on the same night have this kind of crazy vivid dream about their future. But they don't know what it means. And so they've, they've got to know Joseph by now. And they know that Joseph is good at interpreting dreams. And so they go to Joseph and Joseph hears their dream. And he says, okay, this is what the dreams mean. He first of all, he speaks to the butler. He says, um, you know, in, in three days, it's going to be Pharaoh's birthday. And, Pharaoh, and on Pharaoh's birthday... He is going to lift your head up and he is going to restore you to his personal butler and wine taste. I mean, how's that for a job? Okay. And the butler is like, wow, this is so cool. This is so great. And then Joseph asks him a question. It's so vulnerable. It's so honest. I love it. He says, hey, butler, when you get out, will you remember me? Just remember me. I'm, I'm, I'm rotting away here in prison. I've done nothing wrong. Tell someone. Tell Pharaoh. Maybe you can help get me out of here. And the butler assures him, if he gets out, he'll definitely remember him. Now, the baker is listening to all this, and he's thinking, wow, that's exciting. I wonder what my dream could mean. And he goes to Joseph and says, what does my dream mean? And Joseph says, hey, you know what? Your head will also be lifted up. Unfortunately, it's going to be lifted up off your body. Um, again, this is like Game of Thrones. We're Ned Stark suddenly, you know? So... So he's like, oh my word. Now, now, I don't know why, but Joseph doesn't stop there. <laughs> he says, and then your body is going to be impaled on a stake and the birds are going to come and eat your flesh. I would have, I would have done it a little differently if I was Joseph. I'd probably been, hey, bro, listen, you know, whew, these dreams, they're hard to interpret and you never really know. And why don't we just like, let's see what happens in the next few days, you know. But he doesn't do that. And true is enough. Uh, true enough, three days later, one of them is beheaded and impaled, and the butler is restored. Now, put yourself again in Joseph's position. The butler has been restored to Pharaoh, and, and you've asked the butler to remember you when you get out. And so you think, well, maybe today's the day. Maybe today's the day I'm going to get out of this place. I've been here for years, maybe today. And one day goes past, and two days goes past, and three days goes past, and a week, and a month, and a year and the scriptures tell us that the butler completely forgot all about Joseph. And maybe again, your story is the story. Maybe you feel like you've been forgotten. And the years go by, and another year, and another Christmas, still alone, still single, still depressed, still confused, still doubting, still sick, still injured. For all Joseph knew, this was his lot in life for the rest of his life. But day after day after day, he continues to live as if God was with him. It really is quite something. Now, I'm going to fast forward the story, but fast forward. Joseph is now 30 years old. Remember when he arrived in Egypt, how old he was? 17. It's been 13 years. Pharaoh has these dreams that are kind of vivid and, and he believes they mean something for his future but he can't he gets all his wisest people his counselors his magicians his courtroom and they can't interpret it so the baker remembers so the butler remembers 
Hey, there was that guy in prison years ago. I don't even know if he's still alive. I don't know if you know if he's still there. I don't know if you know if he's dead or whatever. But, but he can interpret dreams. And he tells Pharaoh. And the, the scripture says, Pharaoh sent for Joseph and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. And when he had shaved, because he was a mess, and when he had changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream. No one can interpret it. But I've heard it is said that when you hear a dream, you, can, you could interpret it. And then the words that Joseph utters next is absolutely staggering. They're probably some of the most courageous words that have ever been said. I mean, this is his chance to kind of, you know, get right with Pharaoh, get out of jail. And then he tells her, just before Pharaoh even tells him the dream, Joseph responds, he says, I cannot do it. I cannot do it. And I'm sure the butler is just sort of slightly, you know, backing up. <laughs> Like, oh my word, I'm going to get thrown in jail again. I vouch for this guy, blah, blah, blah. But then he says this. Joseph replied to Pharaoh, I cannot do it, but God. Say, but God. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. You've got to understand the context, guys. Pharaoh was God. Remember? Pharaoh was God. And people would, tell, people would tell Pharaoh, every day there was a job, literally his job was to whisper in Pharaoh's ear, you're a God, you're a God, you're a God, like Caesar. And Joseph was saying, hey, you know what, God? You know what Pharaoh, you're a little G-God. But my big G-God, he can interpret the stream. He has the answers. And I'm telling you, the court would have probably just gasped in horror because then not only does he speak to Pharaoh like that, he actually starts to give Pharaoh advice. The whole courtroom must have erupted. I mean, this kid still smells like dungeon. Who is this Hebrew slave telling the Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the planet, what to do? But Joseph, he does. He's, he says that. He says, here's what your dreams mean. And then real quickly, I'm not going to kind of cover the whole thing. But basically, he says, what's going to happen is there's going to be seven years of plentiful harvest. And then there's going to be seven years of a terrible drought. He says, in the harvest years, store up the grain, build granaries, take 20% of the grain and store it away. People won't even mind, there'll be so much grain. And then when the time comes, when the famine hits, you've got all this grain stored up and you can sell it to the people. And I mean, Pharaoh, he's loving this because this is going to make him even more powerful, even more rich. And so he says, he says to, um, to Joseph, he says, the plan seemed good to Pharaoh and all his officials. So Pharaoh asked him, can we find anyone like this man one in whom is the Spirit of God, big G God. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all of this known to you, not only what's going to happen, but what we should do about it, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. I mean, he makes Joseph the prime minister of Egypt. And let me tell you, this is much better than being the prime minister of England. Because <laughs> you don't get a Brexit pass. You know what I mean? That's like a dummy pass. You just, he's got power. And Joseph gets to work. He prepares the nation. He builds the granaries. He builds the storehouses. He organizes the whole thing. And exactly what he predicts happens is seven years of plentiful, seven years of drought. And the drought gets so bad, it actually spreads up north to where Joseph's family are living. And we pick up the story there. When Jacob's, uh, Joseph's father learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? We're starving to death. I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some, some for us so that we may live and not die. 
So the boys load up, they head down to Egypt, and the stage is set. And the fortunes have been reversed. What goes around comes around. And this is what I want to get you. There's a point in all of this, and it's so powerful. Genesis 42, verse 6. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold the grain to all these people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And as soon as Joseph saw them, he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger. And they did not recognize him. Now, do you know why they didn't recognize Joseph? Because he walked like an Egyptian. Come on, that was funny. My dad jokes are on point this morning. Okay. Because he walked like an Egyptian. No, it's because the last time they saw him, he was 17 years old. He was a scrawny teenager who'd been thrown down a pit. Now they are standing before the second most powerful person on the planet. Now, here's the question. Here's the point of all of this. Here's the question we have to wrestle with. And some of you may not be wrestling with this now, but you will in the future, and I want you to be ready. We've said in this series that words determine the direction and the quality and the destination, the destiny of your life. But what do you do when you've got the power? What do you do when your words determine the destiny of your enemy? Of the people that have hurt you? who've said those things about you, who spoke behind your back, what do we do then when what goes around comes around? And this happens to us more than we realize. When the guy at work fails and you were the one who said, I told you you shouldn't have done it, and now you have the opportunity to say, I told you so, or to leapfrog him in the organization, or whatever. When your wife is wrong and she knows she's wrong, and you know she's wrong, I wish that would happen to me one time. But anyway, when you've got the upper hand, when the person who left your church comes back, when the person who left your gym, whatever, I don't know, what happens when you've got the power and your words determine the destiny of someone else? And let me just give you a clue as to what will happen. I know what will happen when that happens in your life because the answer to this question depends upon what you did with your bitterness and your anger. That's how you're going to respond. It depends on what's inside of you, not what's happening around you. If you're still dragging around this bag of bitterness, this, this weight of unforgiveness, of resentment, then you know what will happen? In those moments when you have the upper hand, you will be like the people you don't like. Yes? You will become like the people that you don't like. Back to the story. I'm going to wrap it up. These boys are bowed down before, their, before Joseph. They don't know it's Joseph. And I'm sure in that moment, Joseph had a whole bunch of stuff going on inside of him. Maybe you do now as you think about the people who've hurt you, who've wronged you. All the emotions that well up. He must have remembered the nights when he was chained in the Ishmaelites campsite and he could hear them laughing about his future. He didn't know what was going to happen to him if he'd even survived, the prayers that went unanswered, standing on that auction block, stripped naked while people walked around him and poked and prodded him to see what he was good for or how much he could be purchased for, the lie of Potiphar's wife, knowing he'd done nothing wrong, being thrown again into a dungeon for years and years. And there before him are the men responsible for all of it. 
And, I'll, and I, I mean, to be honest, you can read the story, but for the next three chapters, Joseph does toy with them a little bit. He calls them a spy, and they say, no, we're not spies. And he sends them back to get Benjamin, the younger brother. But eventually, it says, Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants, and he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And now just imagine this moment. Imagine this moment. It says, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. And then the text says, and they wetteth themselves. It doesn't actually say that. Um, I added that in. That's like the King James Version. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure their bowels release it. I don't know. I mean, the, because they were expecting him to do unto them as they had done unto him. And with one word, with one word, Joseph could have said, I want 10 steaks outside. Let's have some impaling. But he doesn't do that. He uses words to do something different. He says, is my father still living? He remembers his father. He doesn't even know what's happened there. He says, but his brothers, I mean, this makes sense. His brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified in his presence. Because when they'd heard this, this, these words, I am Joseph. I mean, all those memories would have come flooding back for them. But they did not need to be terrified in his presence because Joseph had lived all those years as if God was with him during his absence and he had learned how to keep bitterness at bay. I want to ask you, have you learned that yet? Have you learned how to keep bitterness at bay? You can't be a builder if you're bitter. When you have the upper hand, do you use your, your words to, to wound, to inflict? Do you, do you use sarcasm? Do you use your wit? Do you, what do you do? And remember, words, words are like stones. You can throw them or you can pave the way forward. I'm going to close the service in a bit. And before we do, we've got a little prop that we want to kind of invite you to engage with. Under your chair, under every chair is a little stone. And you can look now, you can grab it. This is like, we're trying to be like Oprah now, you know what I mean? Um, there's a stone. Some of you got bigger stones, some of you got smaller stones. It doesn't really matter. These stones, I want you just to hold them in your hand. We're going to do something in a bit, but I want you just to hold them in your hand for a moment. And let these stones represent the words you speak. The words you speak to your parents. The words you speak to your kids. The words you speak to your colleagues. The words you speak about people behind their back. Let these words, let the stone represent those words and just hold them in your hand. And here's, here's the thing. You see, Joseph, we never know the power of our words. Joseph could not have known, he could not have known, was that God's plan for the ages dangled by the thread of the next words that he would speak. Because before him sat the 10 tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel, through whom God would introduce the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, who would do for the world exactly what Joseph was about to do for his brothers. He would forgive them. Because he didn't carry around bitterness and anger, even though he had every reason in the world to do so. But he has them stand up. He embraces them 
the scriptures say. He says, go, he says to them, go home, get your family. I'll send an escort with you. I'll send so much grain you'll have more than you need and bring them back. I want to hear about your kids. I want to meet your grandkids. I've missed out. And you know what? I will take care of you and your families for the rest of your lives. And that's exactly what he does. The brothers came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? That line always confused me, but I'll tell you what it means. Joseph is declaring that he would not play God. He would not play God. And this is so important because you will never experience, I've seen this play out in a thousand situations, you will never experience the good that comes from the bad unless you recognize God was with you during the bad and then you refuse to play God when things are good. Can I say that again? You will never experience the total good that can, can come from the bad, from the hard times, unless you live during those hard times as if God is with you and then you refuse to play God when things are going well. Joseph said, you intended to harm me. You intended to harm me, but God is bigger than that. And God was silent, but God wasn't still. God was at work. He seemed like he was far away. But what God intended is for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. That's you and I as well. So then don't be afraid. You're not my slaves. I'm not going to execute you. I will provide for you and your children. And then he reassured them. And then he spoke kindly to them. He spoke kindly to them. After all they'd done to him. Man, I... I unbelievable his words of kindness of compassion changed the course of a nation and ultimately the course of human history how words carry that power our words are like stones we can throw them or we can use them to pave the way forward and one day maybe one day soon you may find yourself in a situation where you have power over the person or the persons who took from you who hurt you, who harmed you, who stole that first marriage, who stole your childhood, who stole the opportunity for you to raise your own children. And you don't know what's going to come around. And in those moments, you and I will remember, we'll remember what they took, we'll remember what they said and did. But in that moment, our Heavenly Father is going to invite us to remember something else. To remember that God was with us. And in that moment, you have a decision. I have a decision to make. What will we do when our words determine the destiny of those who've hurt us? Will we pay them back or will we use our words to pave the way forward? The choice is ours. And who knows, guys, who knows what God could do, how God could use our words to change a life, to change someone else's life, maybe even to change an entire nation. He's done it once, and He can do it again. And just as we close, your decision, let me remind you, will not be determined by what's happening then. It will be determined by what's, what's happening between now and then inside of you. How you deal with that bitterness, how you maintain perspective. And I hope that you, I hope that me, I hope that we will take our cue. I will take my cue from the one who gave His life for us, Jesus not from the ones who took life from us, 
not from the ones who's abandoned us, but from the one who is with us. And if you do, and if I do, and if we do, Grace Family Church, we will become, in that moment, we will become like our Father in heaven. And we will be free. I'm going to ask you to stand as we close. Now we're going to do something a little different as we close. As I kind of dismiss you, I'm going to give you a few options and feel free to do whatever you need to do. But I want you to take that stone. Some of you may want to take your stones home with you as a reminder of the power of your words. And maybe put it by your mirror, your dressing table, on your office desk, somewhere where you see it every day. Then it can remind you of how you're going to use your words, not to throw, but to pave the way. Maybe you want to take this moment to bring your stone forward because what we've done here is kind of a symbolic gesture, as an act of surrender, as an act of letting go of our own bitterness, of our own resentment, forgiving those who don't deserve our forgiveness so that we can live present and free with those we live with now. And so you can take your stone and you can just place it on this road as a symbolic gesture of saying, I'm not going to throw my stones. I'm going to use them to pave the way. And you can place your stone wherever you want. I mean, we've got a little windy road here. You can place them wherever you want. Although my OCD says, please place it in the windy road that we've laid out. <laughs> and uh, you don't have to rush it, but you can make your way forward. We'll have volunteers up front who'd love to pray for you as well. And, um, and then just take your time. And then we are going to be showing the rugby um, probably about 10 minutes time. We'll show the last bit of the rugby. You can hang around for that. But let's use this moment. We're going to play a kind of an upbeat song about the power of our words because I don't want to leave you feeling depressed. I want you to kind of walk out saying, this is exciting. We get to use our words to do something great. So when you're ready, make your way. Take your stone. Have a great week. Go Boca. See you next time. Invite someone next week. And we'll see you next time. Thanks so much.